Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Philip Payne. Philip is a biomedical informatician and data scientist at Washington University, St. Louis. He is also a recent TEDx St. Louis speaker, where he talked about a new normal, embracing the healthcare information age. Hello, Philip. Hey, really happy to be here. And did I, I like say that. that right, informatician? You did. And Yahoo! actually, that's half the battle, just being able to pronounce it's, the word informatician. It's, it's not a word that yeah. I use often, no. so you never know. But all right, let's talk about your TED. First, let me just tell you, I still have this image when we were, when it, like before you were going on stage and you were just talking about, you know, the, the, the nervous, you know, because it mm-hmm. is nervous. It's a nerve-wracking thing to be like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm going to get up there. Right. You know, I have memorized this. I have practiced it. But it's still, there's like a nervousness. But that you kept talking about Will Ferrell in the movie. What movie was it? <laughs> it's Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights where yes. the, he, he kept making his hands go up. He's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. You're like, I have this fear. I'm going to be up there and my hands are going to start rising. But it's a whole thing to learn how to. Well, it is. Be, and. And, you know, my experience as an academic, I give talks all the time. Right. But I'm used to standing behind a podium or having something between me and the audience. Not right out there. It's very vulnerable. Right. And in TEDx, it's you and, as I described it, the tiny red dot, which seems to get smaller the more you practice. (laughs) As we keep saying, don't get off the red dot. Stay on the red dot. (laughs) And so you you become very acutely aware of where are your hands and the rest of your body. And you you coached us on this. But all I could do is think to myself, like, I hope I don't do anything awkward. Word with my hands, which is where that quote from that movie comes I in. I loved it. And yeah. it's so funny. I mean, here, you're, you're like this incredibly intelligent human being. And I'm like, and I keep thinking of Talladega Nights. Every it's time. an appropriate metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Yeah. So let's talk about your talk. Yeah. So, you know, what I tried to do was explain to people why I'm so passionate about AI in medicine. And, you know, recently, there's been a lot of promise. People talk a lot about how we're going to transform healthcare by using computers and making better decisions. But then people are also very skeptical or nervous. You know, sure. what if the what if the computer's making a decision for me? Or, you know, what if the algorithm's biased or inaccurate? And so I really tried to tell this story about all of these scenarios where humans working together with computers were better than humans alone. And I think mm-hmm. that was really what I wanted people to hear, that it's not about computers making decisions for us. It's right. about us empowering humans to make better choices because we sort of strip away all the things that aren't really value added and focus on the unique thing that humans can do, which is find patterns in messier, incomplete data. And I think we could all agree we're drowning in we, a we, sea of data, right? We got a lot of data right now. Right, yeah. exactly. More than we know what to do with. I right. always remind people when they say to me, you know, we should capture more data for, you know, <laughs> patients with whatever disease we're interested in. I'm like, why don't we start with the data we already have? Yeah, right. right. We got a lot yeah. of data. So are you are you one of those people? Because, you know, like there's all these people are afraid. They're, they're saying, oh, we're going to give all these machines. Power. This is the thing that's going right. to be our doom and gloom i'm like probably not we're kind of you know polluting the planet that might right. be the doom and gloom yeah. but um but you know there's this thought out there cuz we've seen the science fiction movies and all that you know that the machines are going to hell's going to take right. over the world what is your thought on that yeah so i think there are big ethical challenges you know especially when we let 
computers have more and more autonomy and, right. and what we would call right. in my world, and I promise I won't be too geeky, but what we would call closed loop systems where okay. the computer makes a decision and then it can act on that decision and there's no human in the middle. So the reality right now is as impressed as we are with uh, AI it's actually not really smart. Um, I've Exi talked about this. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you were to talk about the voice assistant in your home, and I'm always very reticent to say the name because somebody's voice assistant is going to light up and do something. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about the voice assistants in your home, you know, they have an intelligence on the sort of level of maybe a kindergartner. Right. What they're good at is answering very quickly and accessing large amounts of information exactly. that you and I might not be able to do that quickly. But intrinsically, they're not very smart. And although I said before we started, I didn't want to talk about chat GPT. Here we go. Here We're we go. There. Had even, to, it right, had to come up. Had to come up and early. But even if you take something like chat GPT, it's very sophisticated, but it's still just recapitulating all the knowledge that's out there on the internet. It's right. not engaging in a creative process. Um, it can appear sometimes like that because as I was sharing with you, it sometimes is interacting with you as though it's writing a story based on what it thinks you want to hear. Right. So back to the idea, are machines going to take over today? I think that the likelihood of that happening is very low because that would imply some intrinsic intelligence or intent, which AI doesn't have because it, it's not creative in and of itself. And it would need to be taught, right? Absolutely. I, there was a, a few years ago, and I don't remember who this talk was given by, but it was, it was on the TED mm -hmm. stage. And um, the gentleman was talking about this, and he was saying, he's like, you know, we have to teach the machines a lot. We, it's not like we can just let them run amok. And he had an example of, you know, let's say you have like the personal robots become a thing. We can have a robot at home that does right. things. And you say to the personal robot, no matter what, the children have to be fed at 5 o'clock. No matter what, 5 o'clock, the children have to be fed. And then the robot goes and looks in the refrigerator and there's nothing there and it starts eyeing the family cat. You know, and <laughs> right. so it's like, right. it's like, you know, we have to think through a whole bunch of scenarios on what we're going to teach and what we're what information we are going to put into the into this AI so that it it doesn't do something horrible and you well, know traumatizing, right? It's a hundred percent right. So uh first of all, training AI is really hard because you have to decide what am I gonna train it on? Yeah, right. What are the rules? Yeah, there's like questions before the questions. Absolutely. It's actually sort of a never-ending chain right. of you know assumptions and questions that you have to address. But I think you touched on something uh really, really important, which is I often say this to my students, uh, and it'll sound like I'm insulting computers, but I'm not. <laughs> okay. Uh, but these algorithms, they are dumb, literal machines. Yeah. They will do exactly what we tell them to do. Now, when I say that, it's a little bit of an overreach because right. they are getting more intelligent by more virtue of— More sophisticated, right, yeah, right. We can train them on more data. We can infer more knowledge from that data. But they will do exactly what we tell them to because at the end of the day, um, and I'll go back to some of the examples you and I were talking about earlier, you know, it's all a function of probabilities, the the computer looks at this space of potential decisions as a series of numbers. And they're all basically the probabilities of the right or optimal outcome. Right. And we can shape that space. We can say, you know, how do we want to adjust those probabilities based on rules that we impose? Like, always feed the kids 
but don't use the family pet right. as a source yeah, of right, that right. meal, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, that's a series of probabilities. When the robot looks at the family cat, to use your examples, it might know that the probability of that being the right choice is very low because we told them <laughs> not to do that. <laughs> right. Uh, and then they will follow that rule. So I think that's actually where the responsibility is on us as designers. And I, I think that's the thing that probably is underappreciated right now about AI, that we can't just focus on the algorithms and how good they are at predicting outcomes. We have to think about them in this bigger system where humans interact with computers and yes. there's an environment, there's preferences, there's all these other factors. So they don't exist in a vacuum. And if we don't design for that environment, we'll fail. Yeah. We'll fail to there'll see be, the promise there'll AI. There'll be issues. Of Absolutely. course there will. But yeah. it'll be a human issue actually right. in the end. Right. because so We're is, not getting out of our responsibility. Is this world, oh, there's got to be the what if question must have to come up a lot. What yes. if, what yes. if, what That's if? Right. I mean, I, I, it, there has to be this endless what ifs. Yeah. So, and I think part of that is understanding the problem that you're solving. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I say to people when they come to me and they they ask, you know, could you predict this outcome? So I'm going to use something from my world in the okay. hospital. Uh, can you predict which patient is going to, you know, develop a life-threatening complication after their surgery? So the most important what if question is, well, what if I did? What would we change for that patient? Right. Is there a modifiable? Then do we say you shouldn't yeah. get the surgery because? Right. Or should we say you should get the surgery and there is a high probability that you're going to have this traumatic complication and we'll do our best to treat it, but that's better than the alternative, which is it, not getting treated. Right. But the reality is, is that sometimes there's no modification. So, uh, you know, if we have... Uh, for example, in the cancer domain, a predictive algorithm that says, you know, this patient is not going to respond to chemo or radiotherapy, right. uh, and we've exhausted all the known therapies, um, then what? Do we say that we're not going to try yeah, like, treating that patient? Oh, well, we're done. Exactly. Yeah, nothing we can do about this. And I'm not right. sure that we're in a position where we could say that. We have clinical trials. We have novel agents, right. off-label uses. But you have to be very thoughtful. The what if is, what if I did predict this outcome? then what am I going to do differently? And that's the human question, right? What's the different decision we're going to make because we learn something about what's going to happen in the future? Because I also start thinking about, you know, that emotional part of it. Like if someone said to me, okay, miss, you know, we think you need this surgery, but because of whatever, there, you're, you know, there's a high probability this would happen. I would then be going into the surgery tensed up, freaked yes. out, you know, um, you know, thinking, gosh, I thought this was going to help me. And now I'm freaking out about it. And like, it's going to, you know what I mean? Like now all of a sudden I'm in a terrible place to have this. And I, and I can start, you know, we have these brains that just right. can go into a whole bunch of different places. And I think so. I think about kind of the placebo effect of it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Well, there's a subtle irony to the example you gave because we actually have a project right now at WashU where we're looking at using AI through voice assistance to train patients to be more mindful before, during, and after surgery. That's awesome. Right. So they can basically work on some of the, you know, practices that will help them relax and maybe not get into those more destructive yeah. cycles of thought. Because the reality is with our surgical example, it's a very high stress, high anxiety environment. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I think we have to acknowledge that. And then the next question is how do we help patients to be an active part of sort of navigating it? But that's I a positive use of AI. This. Yeah. That's um I mean, that's amazing to me because um, you know, we often think of hospitals as being so clinical and right. sterile and like no emotion. And I mean, and you know, I mean, there are right. surgeons out there that kind of are right. very robotic in a way, and they don't they lack that bedside you know, it's going to be okay. I got right. you. We got this. We're going to do this. Um, so the fact that you're working with them in this, I love that. Yeah. Oh, and well, and I, think, I think that's so great. You are touching on, though, I think an interesting part of healthcare, which is sort of the resiliency of healthcare workers. Because the reality is my my response when you when you bring that up is sometimes for our healthcare providers, they have to they be have like that. They have to be that. Like I right. can't be in a space where I start getting emotionally attached to this person right. because – then it's, I mean, I have to be very much like I am going to cut into this person and do these following right. things for them. Yeah, that's very So true. it's a very, it's a very tough environment. And I think, you know, another area that we work on a lot actually, again, with AI is trying to detect burnout in our providers. So it turns right. out that when our providers are using things like electronic health records, we can tell by the way that they interact with the computer, whether or not they're functioning at a high level, they're doing okay, or whether or not they're under stress, there's certain God, signals. Yeah. And we can actually provide a little bit of a behavioral nudge and say, hey, it seems like maybe, you know, you need to take a minute because you may be uh, about to make a decision that is not uh, the best possible decision for your patient right. because you are experiencing stress, burnout, maybe you're distracted. Um, I think that's another positive example, but it goes back to the human dimension because this is AI to send that signal to that provider right? to say, hold on a second, you might not be in the best place right now to make this decision for this patient because the providers are human too. That's awesome. And, and I mean, because they'd be devastated. If, that's right. Yeah, that's right. they would be, it would devastate them because of course the intention is not to hurt anyone. Wow. And it's a tough environment, right? I mean, the reality is, is healthcare is time compressed. Uh, we never have all the resources we want. We never have all the data we want. Um, and a lot of the decisions that have to be made are very time sensitive. Right. That's, that's a very challenging place uh, to make decisions that are complex in nature. Right. And, you know, the providers are humans. The patients are clearly humans, as are their family members. And so you always have sort of that unknown quotient, which is the human factor there. And you need to bring all that together sometime in just a few minutes. Um, it's a pretty phenomenal process when you step back and think about it from a sort of cognitive psychology standpoint. Right. What happens in medical decision making? Oh, my gosh. It's exciting. Yeah. So have you have you guys thought – so this, this – what you have going on right now with, you know – helping the patient to prepare themselves on their own for this. Is there a thought of, of people coming in to kind of take that part of what the, the surgeon may not be able to be all, you know, fluffy, huggy kind of thing, but, but like maybe that's there in some way? I mean, almost like a surgery coach like we're right. gonna get through this together where I'm gonna I'm gonna help you get your mind in the right place, teach you some, you know, kind of more meditative practices to prepare for this? Is that part of the equation? Yeah. So, you know, we've been exploring, and this is um, a complex process, but we've been looking at, for example, in some orthopedic procedures, what we call prehabbing a patient. Okay. So um, with no disrespect to, to my surgeon colleagues, sometimes when a diagnosis is made, the decision is surgery is the right therapy. And then the next step is let's go operate. Right. 
But it may be valuable to the patient to take a minute and do some work before surgery to make sure that they are in the right frame of mind and they're able to recover with maximum impact post-surgically. So in these prehab programs, uh, for example, let's say knee or hip replacement, um, we might do some work from a physical therapy standpoint to make sure that patient is ready to actively participate in their post-surgical rehab. Uh, We'll do some work to make sure, for example, if they're diabetic, that their blood sugar's under control, Mm -hmm. or if they are hypertensive, their blood pressure's under control, sort of modifiable risk factors. We might do some coaching around sort of mindfulness and sort of the mental health aspects of preparing for a surgical procedure and being ready again to participate in recovery. Um, And the reality is that the data is very clear for these patients. They have better outcomes than the patients that go straight to surgery. I Right. I totally can see that. Right. The challenge that we have is sort of, one, um, making sure that we can make this accessible and affordable for all yeah, of our patients. Right. And number two, um, you know, some people, uh, when they are presented with the decision that they need surgery, you know, their natural instinct is to say, I just want to get this over with. Yeah, let's with. just get it over right. with. Right. And so there's an educational component to really sort of, you know, make a compelling case that these types of prehab programs are useful. And I think we're going to see more and more of this because, you know, one of the things that's happening in healthcare is that we are increasingly shifting from a business model that's based upon getting paid for doing things to being paid for quality and safety and outcomes. And that means we worry a lot more about reducing utilization that maybe is unnecessary and maximizing outcomes because, in fact, the business model would put more value on a patient having a good outcome and fewer complications regardless of what we did to treat them. And so all of a sudden, all of these services, these capabilities, whether it be using AI to coach people on mindfulness or prehabbing them before surgery or whatever the case may be, those all become very valuable because we want to make sure we're maximizing outcomes. Because right now, uh, really, the incentives are just do more procedures. Right. Now, yeah, right. There is a reality that right now we have a lot of people waiting a long time for healthcare. So there is also a need to provide more access just in terms of being able to do more procedures. But I would argue if we had fewer complications and better outcomes, that would also free up our providers to be able to do more procedures so people waited less. Exactly. Oh, this is so exciting. Yeah. I love how this is going because it does feel it feels like there's more of the human factor being brought into yes. all of this as opposed to the da, 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 right. this is how this is gonna go and uh let's hope for the best. Right. You know, it's 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 I love that. And Yay. we're seeing it in um, you know, how we train future clinicians. Mm-hmm. We have a new medical school curriculum at Washington University, which is called the Gateway Curriculum. And it includes a lot of components that traditionally weren't in medical school curricula. So, you know, humanism and medicine, understanding social determinants, the role of data and AI in awesome. decision making. Very good. Um, making sure we're training our providers to be advocates for their patients in navigating the healthcare system. And this actually came out of several years worth of strategic planning where we asked this very fundamental question, which was, you know, what are the skills or knowledge that a provider needs to be successful in the modern healthcare environment? And it turns out when you start doing that brainstorming, there were lots of things that have traditionally been part of the medical school curriculum. People need to understand the basic biological, you know, underpinnings of disease and clinical presentation and, you know, good uh, diagnostic decision-making without a doubt. That's good. But then there's all these other more humanistic dimensions of the practice of medicine that maybe haven't been as emphasized in the past. And now we are training our future clinicians to to have those skills from the outset. I think it fundamentally changes the frame of mind. And the oh, question yeah. is, 
What do these clinicians do when they are in the community? I think we're just starting to see the fruits of our labor as the sort of first classes of students in this new curriculum come through. But it's really exciting because we're training clinicians that are ready to practice in the messy, complicated, real world in which patients actually get care. I love it. And and I, I have to think that it also makes the patients feel like they have a bit more control over Absolutely. what's going on because you feel out of control when you're when you have some, you know, you have cancer, you sound right. like, what, how, why is this happening? I didn't ask for this. Right. You know, what, what, you know, what did I do wrong? I mean, there's all these things that come up with people. And then to say to them, like, here's your part in the process of all of this. It has to, I mean, I would think that they feel like they're a bit more in control and not like, I'm not part of this. I just got to go lay down on a table. They'll, they'll put me to sleep and <laughs> it's in their hands. I think that's right. And I think the evidence is very clear that if you engage patients as active members of the care team and you reflect their preferences in the care that you deliver, uh, the outcomes are better. It's not surprising when you say that out loud. Right, right, right. But it maybe isn't the traditional way we've thought about this. And I think, you know, this is a big culture change in medicine. Um, and it also, in equal measure, um, requires our patients to be active parts of the solution space as well, right? We right. need our patients to be ready to participate. And I think the onus is on the healthcare system to make sure we're equipping people, you know, with the information they need and frankly, meeting them where they are. So I'll, I'll exactly. use another computing example. You know, if you sign a consent form today for a procedure, uh, that consent form is very complex yeah. and very few people. You haven't people, read it. Right. You're right. <laughs> no. It's like when you scroll through and click yes yeah, you, on a, on a not, license online. Nobody's reading it. Right. You're just signing it because you know you're supposed to and you need to get right. the surgery. And so you don't really know what you're agreeing to. But right. in there is a lot of important information that would allow you to make you know decisions about you know relative risk. So we've been exploring, for example, how you use tablet devices and sort of interactive video and other tools, right. even chatbots, to be able to deliver that information in a way that's more accessible to patients so that when we talk to them after they've completed the consent process, they can have a conversation with us about those risks and they have been informed by the consent process rather than just, you know, checking a box or signing their name right. on the bottom of a paper form. Yeah. And I think that's one of the areas where we could improve greatly, right? The, the reality is, is that, you know, from the outside, medicine's a pretty impenetrable world, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of terminology that's unfamiliar, a lot of, you know, roles and responsibilities that, you know, you may not be, you know, necessarily familiar with. Right. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, entering into the healthcare system as an active participant is a daunting task. Right. So if we can use every one of those times that we interact with our patients to create a more, what we would call consumer-friendly experience, right? Learning from other industries like finance and logistics and yeah. online shopping and, and bringing that to the table. And actually, uh, we have projects underway right now with our partners at, at BJC looking at, you know, more intuitive tools to help people uh, find a provider when they need to find one. Uh, make an appointment online. Right. Imagine if you would. Uh, and I, I can't believe it. we still don't do this for <laughs> the most part, I'm but we're we are, we're you. working our way through it. You know, uh, making your appointments online. Um, we're also doing that for our workforce. You know, how do we make things more accessible for our workforce to schedule their work and express their preferences around what they want to do? Right. Because at the end of the day. If you had a healthcare system where everybody came to work and was able to do their job and focus on their job, doing the best they possibly can, what we often call practicing at the top of their license for right. providers, right? And that we remove the distractions. And in equal measure, we equip our patients to be active participants. 
That's an entirely different it's world than awesome. where we are today. I yeah. love it. And it's it's so true because um, so what you said right before this when you were talking about the okay, wait, I lost it. The active participation. Right. The there was there was something else in between there. Well, taking away sort of the distractions so that everybody's practicing at the top of their license, doing right. their best possible job. And and the, the online. Yes. I have been wanting to do online. I like online. Yes. It's so much easier. Me too. And and because when you do the phone call, you already know you got to like sit. They're going to tell you one, if two, if which none of them really go for you. Right. You know what I mean? And you finally get to where you want to get and the phone can ring forever. You can be on hold for, forever. And it's such a huge time waster. Yes. I love that I would be able to go online and just make my appointment. And that's just because that's now, what we're used to. Now, I would say that I'm excited that we're doing this too. It's pretty remarkable, right? It's 2023. Right. That we are just getting I there. I know. Right? Um, I can go on a vacation anywhere in the world, book my entire trip, including yeah. restaurants. Exactly. Uh, and I could do that all from my phone. Right. But I still need to talk to a human being on the phone. And I, I will admit something embarrassing. Okay. I hate having to call phone numbers <laughs> and, like, talk to people. Um, I just really don't want to do it. I don't like it yeah, either. So, I'm with you. Yeah. I know. And there's, and there's people that are like— well, you know, there's still this, and I'm like, I know, and I will call people. Like, I have like this this list of people that if they call me, I totally will answer the phone. I will talk to them. You know what I mean? But I want it out of my head really fast, and so I just want to like email it or text yes. it, and then like get back to me. Right. But yeah, being with what I do for marketing and sales, phone calling is still a thing. I know. So well, and so I think you know there always will be you know, communication preferences. Some mm -hmm. people are always going to want to be able to pick up the phone. Actually, we learned this uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, one of the things we had to do was figure out how to sign everyone up when they wanted to get vaccines. And right. you might recall early in right. the pandemic, the primary way we delivered vaccines was through our hospitals. Right. And we had lots of people who had never received care at WashU or BJC that were coming to us and wanting to get a vaccine. And we went back and forth on how to do this. And what we actually arrived at was a chat bot. And instead of having people fill the form because it was very complicated, remember there was right. all these rules and what tier are you and what number and priority and like <laughs> we didn't even understand them and right. they changed like every 24 hours. So, uh, and you know, we literally had hundreds of thousands of people signing up right. every day to do this. So we built a chatbot and the chatbot would walk you through a series of questions and assign you to a, you know, group under right. the very complex rules. And then, you know, it would also help you do things like, oh, we noticed you don't have a, you know, account on our patient portal. Can we set one up so we can communicate with you electronically? And if you said no, I prefer a phone call, we connected you to a group of people who would who would call you. Got, yeah. But we actually learned a lot there because it was a very consumer-friendly tool. Now, I'd love to tell you that we had a strategy, but it was really that we sat there and we said, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people trying to sign up. And we're pretty sure if we just build a website, it's going to break. Right. What technology do we have that's resilient enough? And we have a relationship with Microsoft and we had all of their cloud-based tools and they had very robust chatbot uh, sort of development environments. Right. So like, let's give this a you shot. You didn't have time for strategy. Though. No, you're right. You're, there wasn't time for strategy. Yeah. That was a, a more of an emergency situation. Right. We got to get this like down and dirty as quick as we but can get this done. The outcome metric that matters, at least from my world, is, you know, we know, for example, our health system delivered potentially more vaccines than any other system in the state of Missouri. Right. And oh, good. that was because cool. 
we made it easy. And then there was all sorts of interesting logistics, like converting grocery stores and things like that into vaccination right, clinics. But that's right. not my job. I just focused on the chatbot. So. <laughs> I did the chatbot. Right, right. Yay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. Um, thank you. Oh, my I mean, pleasure. And thank you yeah. for all you're doing. Well, so so I have fun questions. Okay, let's you, do it. First, yes. Okay. Well, tell people how to find you, though. Uh, easiest way to find me is actually through our website for mm-hmm. the Institute for Informatics at WashU, which is just informatics.wustol.edu. Okay. Uh, you can also look for me on Twitter. And uh, you're on LinkedIn. I know, on LinkedIn. You can find me in all the you. socials. You can find me there. So That's so cool yeah. because so ma- there's so many people like you that aren't on all the socials. I love that yeah. you're on all the socials. I think it's, a, it's an important vehicle for us to learn how to use. And I'm a big believer in communicating science to the – the broadest, most uh, inclusive audiences we can. And that means meeting people where they are, where they're going to consume that information. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And you had some cool stuff on yeah. I, I learned some stuff on your LinkedIn. Okay. This is one of the things okay. I learned <laughs> that Uh-oh. I want to know I'm, more I'm about. I'm nervous now. Does my voice tell you anything about my health? Yes, it absolutely does. So we have a really interesting project. Uh, it's part of what's called Bridge to AI, mm-hmm. which is the NIH's largest project. This sounds uh, for, fascinating to me. For AI. And uh, effectively what we're doing is looking at how you can take recordings of people's voices and detect certain features that may be indicative of health conditions like hypertension or diabetes or, you know, a neurological condition or maybe even some cancers. And the reason why this is so important is we have lots of people who need specialized care that don't live in an environment like St. Louis where you have world-class yeah academic medical centers. And we've learned a lot in the last couple of years about delivering care remotely, virtual care, telemedicine. Imagine if you could call your doctor and say, you know, I'm not feeling well. And your doctor would get a signal that says, according to the voice recording, they may be suffering from hypertension and we could treat you right now. Oh my gosh. Right. So that's what we're working on. And it's a big collaboration with multiple sites across the country. And what's really important is we're going to build a very large data set and make it all publicly available. So one of the things that I'm working on is the education and outreach side of this. How do we engage citizen scientists? How do we make sure people that are experts in AI but maybe don't work in healthcare can go and, you know, access in a secure and private way uh, these voice recordings and other clinical data and maybe come up with the next killer algorithm that will allow us to better diagnose cancer or any other disease using these recordings? I think part of that's we got to make sure that we don't imagine that, like, we have to do everything in our silo in medicine. Right, right, right. right. We need to bring in more people into the field because we have a lot of big, complex problems to tackle. So we need all the help we can get. So Well, yeah, and it takes different skill sets for something yeah. like that. I mean, it was the same, like, when uh, – when I started out with my company and we, we do social media marketing, and when I first started and I would, I'd contact a company, they'd all go, oh, you got to talk to the, the IT guy. Right. And I was like, well, no, because the IT guy is going to like hook up and make sure that your computers go out to the internet right. and da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, but I, I'm like human-to-human connection here. I'm, I'm marketing. Because in their brain it was, well, she sits in front of a computer Therefore, she talks to the IT guy. He's the computer guy. Right. So it took some education on, no, no, that's not the person I need. I need to, you know. And we we talk a lot about this in in academia. We talk about some of the most important problems that we want to solve. They are intrinsically trans or interdisciplinary. And these mean different things, right? Spanning disciplines versus sort of making specific interdigitations between fields. But this is this is a big challenge for us, right? Like getting out of our silos and into this sort of systems view of these big problems. 
I love it. Yeah. How interesting. Okay. Yes. I would like to know, back in high school, Uh-oh. did you have a favorite band? Um, I had a couple favorite bands. All right. Well, did you did you get intelligence on my favorite no, bands? No, I oh. have zero clue on this one. This um, was just one I felt like asking you. <laughs> so I, I will share with you. So I grew up in Southern California in okay. San Diego. So I'm going to give you two answers. So right. I've always been, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this because I'm sure this will date me. Don't but I've be always been a big Dave Matthews fan. I've seen them in concert awesome. more times than I want to count. I probably have every single album that they've ever released on my phone. Uh, my daughter always asks me, why do you always listen to them? She's 11. <laughs> she's perplexed about this. But I will also tell you, growing up in uh, San Diego, a few formative events uh, for me were a few Jimmy Buffett concerts that were oh, really cool. just like these amazing experiences. And yeah. it kind of encompasses everything about that lifestyle when you, you know, live, you know, in a place, you know, like that on the water, you know, where right. that's sort of an integral part of your life. And I do miss that from time to time. I always tell people I'm making a very slow migration west. I grew up in San Diego. I went to school in New York. <laughs> I lived in Columbus, Ohio for 10 years, and now I moved to St. Louis. Uh, and I'm pretty sure if my math is right, I will not survive making it all the way back to the West Coast <laughs> unless I pick up my pace. So, yeah. Well, but St. Louis, we're so medical community. Yes. I mean, it's, 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 when you go outside of St. Louis, if you ever are in a place that's not like St. Louis and you're used to St. Louis healthcare, yes. it's an eye-opener. Absolutely. You, you realize what we got here Absolutely. when you're in another town sometimes. Yeah. You're like, really? Do you, you guys, I'm not feeling confident like yeah. I would in St. Louis hospitals. You that's, know? that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then one of the things I ask everyone, because kindness is my big word, um, just share with us top of mind, a kindness you received, you've given, you witnessed, like just a story about kindness. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. One of the one of the things that I saw, which was just absolutely remarkable during the middle of the pandemic, um, was we had this group, which was the Metro Pandemic Task Force, and that's how we coordinated all of our health systems. And then within BJC, we had sort of our uh, sort of own efforts around uh, how we would support testing and vaccine delivery. And one of the things that we learned uh, early on in the pandemic was that one of the areas that was most impacted by COVID was in the North City area around BJC Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a very medically underserved area. We're one of the few providers there, lots of socioeconomic barriers to care, lots of trust gaps. And we were trying to figure out, like, how could we make it easy for people to just show up and get their tests and, you know, get their vaccines eventually? And literally this team of people from across our entire health system came together and we converted this auditorium at the campus into this, um, you know, testing and vaccine center. And it literally, these were people volunteering their time above and beyond their time working in the hospital or in the clinics from all over. You know, we have a 300 mile catchment area. People were driving in from all of our outlying hospitals. Oh, wow. And it was such an all hands on deck exercise. And I looked at it, I thought like, these are people that are truly embodying why we work in healthcare. And yeah. I always tell people it's a little bit of a luxury in a way to work in healthcare. And this sounds like a weird thing to say, but when people talk about, you know, are we mission oriented? Do we understand mm -hmm. why we come to work? It's not hard to understand why you come to work every day when you sit in your office and you're surrounded by buildings full of people that are coming and seeking care. Right. And they're hoping that you have an answer for them. Right. 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 Um, that's a very sobering fact. In fact, even more sobering is when you see helicopters show up because you think to yourself, no matter how anxious or upset I am about the things I'm dealing with today, right. it's nothing compared to what that patient or their family is experiencing. So coming back to that mission orientation, like it was just this phenomenal 
team effort where people came from all over supply chain, finance, nursing, clinical oh, engineering, wow. and literally materialized this public health resource out of thin air. And literally thousands and thousands of people got their tests and ultimately their vaccines there. And I look back at that, and we did that many other places. Right. But I always remember early in the pandemic, like this all hands on deck. And honestly, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know what we were setting up for. I mean, right. that was like our story of the entire experience. Right. We just knew we had to do something. So professionally, I like I've never seen anything like that. Um, in some ways, I hope I never will see something like that again. Right. Oh, On right. the other hand, it was pretty remarkable to see what we were capable of uh, in sort of this extreme situation and how people really sort of leaned into that mission orientation. Well, I mean, and that's the COVID thing, right? Yeah. It, it was it was horrible. It was it was a terrible thing, but there was there was good that came out yes. of it. And I love looking at the silver lining because, of course, for you know, for many families, it was just devastating. Yes. Then there was also this lessons learned that kind of sit back and pause and go, right. we maybe have to do things different now. But I think the challenge to all of us right now is, are we actually going to, you know, do what you just said? Um, and I, for one, am a little nervous. You know, there are signs that we are retrenching from some of the things that we learned. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about, like, I want to get back to normal. I would tell you, at least in my world, there were a lot of things that were wrong with normal before right. the pandemic. So I always tell people I would like a new normal yeah. that's informed exactly. by what we've learned. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. Um, I think that, you know, during that time, now with my company, it was like this big overturn because we had some clients that just weren't going to make it. Right. You know, and then we had other client, uh, other people coming and going, I've got to go digital now. Right. You know, because, and so it's like we had this like big overturn and we were crazy busy. We we didn't, we didn't make less money. We didn't make more money. We just kind of right. went, whole right. new set of people, you know, but, um, but with being at home and, you know, like a lot more like at home and like more quiet time and everything, I, for me, I felt like it was just a time of like real reflection and what's next and um, not, I mean, I've always been one of those people that like work on myself, like what do I got going on myself, like take myself on and that kind of thing. But I, I feel like it, it kind of sped that up. Yeah. And, like I really sat back and considered like, what? what do I really want the rest of this time to look like? I want to be much more thoughtful and intentional than ever around this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll share from my vantage point, you know, I trained to be a researcher, right? Mm -hmm. You know, pretty traditional academic pathway to, you know, teach and to do research in my lab. And then, you know, moving into the last couple of years, what did I actually end up doing? I ended up practicing what I previously thought of as an academic endeavor, taking these sort of innovative solutions like we were just talking about, uh, AI as, right. a, as yep, an exemplar, yep, yep. and putting them into the health system in real time and seeing how that changes outcomes. And I'll tell you, for me, coming out of this, I want to keep doing that. I love research, but we can't take 10 or 15 years to get these discoveries into the hands of our patients and providers right. when we can actually save lives. So one of the things I have been really you know, focused on here uh, especially in the last year is, you know, and this is a little bit of sort of uh, inside baseball, but how do we turn BJC Healthcare and Washington University School of Medicine into what we call a learning healthcare system? Yeah. Where every single time we interact with our patients, we're trying to figure out how do we use all that data? How do we use technology? How do we position our human beings to be maximally impactful and improve the care that that person receives or their family receives or their community receives? 
And we should do that every time, whether that's someone picking up the phone and asking for an appointment or somebody that shows up in the ED or someone having surgery or whatever might come next. Um, and we have to start measuring success in a matter of hours and days and weeks, not years, years and decades. And years. Yeah. Well, I, for one, want you to keep doing what you're doing. Okay. It's fascinating and amazing. And I mean, it's just, I, I just see it keep bringing gifts. So thank you. No, oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much right. for this was being great. on the podcast yeah. today, Dr. Philip Payne. All right. So thank appreciate you. it. And everyone out there, you've been listening to Mishmash. Go be kind, go be wonderful, and go watch Dr. Philip Payne's TEDx talk. It's really good. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.